Hey, welcome uh, to The Revealing. This is Pastor Frank at One Baptist Church here in Jacksonville. Uh, we hope uh, everybody is uh, staying safe and uh, enjoying their time with family at home. Uh, we know we're living through a, a, a pretty rough time, but uh, hopefully we can take this time and just uh, be able to uh, just uh, reflect on some things and, and be able to uh, remember uh, that uh, time with family is important. And uh, although, uh, you know, we're not able to get out and about, uh, being able to stay home and uh, be able to hang out uh, with our friends and family uh, is, a, is an awesome time as well. Uh, obviously, with everything that's going on, uh, we have uh, halted our recordings of The Revealing uh, and, uh, uh, for, you know, for the obvious reasons of staying safe. Uh, so what we thought we would do uh, for uh, the uh, uh, upcoming weeks is uh, maybe give you some uh, uh, some excerpts of some of our preaching that we do here at One Baptist Church in Jacksonville. Uh, what we're going to do instead of uh, uh, bringing you uh, the revealing crew, uh, we're going to take some weeks off here uh, for uh, the foreseeable future and uh, just uh, play some recordings that we've done uh, at our church uh, in One Baptist Jacks. Uh, so hopefully you'll enjoy those things. Uh, again, uh, stay safe, and uh, the Revealing crew will be coming back at you live here soon. Uh, so we love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name. God is pure. And there are some times, a lot of times, when the Lord will just kind of throw in a name, or we talked about this several weeks back, he'll throw in a number you know, after two days. He'll throw in a location. And it almost seems bizarre if we're if we're really desiring to, to really press in and, and be students of the word. It's like why, why would he say that? Why does that matter? Um, how does that relate to anything? So um, we're going to see tonight how that unfolds. Uh, but these are places that we're going to talk about tonight. These are cities that keep popping up all through church history. Not only will we see them tonight in the Word of God, but we will see them as we get into church history proper. We will see them all throughout our study of church history. And uh, studying church history, really, it provides for us the development of the Word of God, of the Bible. And so, as I said, back in session four, I told you that every version of the Bible available today can be traced back to two lines of manuscripts. And I don't think uh, that's necessarily new information to most of us. I think most of us have at least heard that uh, somewhere along the line uh, here at One Baptist, quite possibly. Uh, but we're really going to kind of dig our claws into that tonight. Uh, every version of the Bible can be traced back to one of two lines of, of Bibles or manuscripts. And when the average Christian, like I have been witness to this, um, I've been in Lifeway at a time I was just shopping, and um, a, a lady walks in, and she's asking the associate for help on what Bible to choose. And so they're talking about the different options, and there are many of them. And uh, she's a sweet elderly lady, and I'm not mad at her, but she's looking for something that's just easy to understand easy to read it's maybe more modern as we might call it you know just you know for our modern vernacular and, and whatnot and, and that tends to be like right don't be mad at that i mean be mad at that because that's really a, a a farce uh but but people i mean i think they maybe just have good intentions 
but they don't know what they're asking for by, by asking that and by looking for that. And so when the average Christian walks into a Christian bookstore to buy a Bible, uh, they're thinking all the all every Bible on those shelves, all the different 20 or whatever versions they happen to have available that day, that they're all translated from the same manuscripts. Older's Bible, a teacher's Bible, a, a men's Bible, a women's Bible, a teen's Bible, and, and all these different things. And so a lot of people just think it's preference. Um, so, so as far as the differences are concerned, it seems to be that they are between really just two things. And I'm not talking manuscripts right now. Um, but really, it seems to be, uh, well, I can get the KJV, the King James Bible, with the uh, old English, these, thou's, thine, ye's, E-I-E-I-O's, and not really understand what's going on. Or I can get one of the many modern, you know, versions that, again, just use the modern English words that I use. And the key difference, though, is not the Bible that you hold in your hand tonight. It is truly and really the manuscript from which that Bible is derived. The key difference is what line of manuscripts were used in the translation because they are not the same. And, and, and just to illustrate that, the, the, there are two lines, uh, as I said earlier, there is one line of manuscripts used in the translation of your King James Bible that can be traced back to Antioch. And I think, again, we, some of us have heard that this evening. And then there's another line of manuscripts used in translation of virtually every other version of the Bible that can be traced back to Alexandria, Egypt. And so if you have those as a, a blanks in your notes, those would be uh, where you would want to go there. Um, uh, but so what we're going to talk about tonight really isn't on, on most people's uh, radar, right? It, it's really not. And so again, you know, we're, we're, our goal isn't to um, raise up our agenda and, and browbeat people who don't hold the same view. It, it's not even about a personal agenda. Right? Like, I mean, who cares about uh, our personal agendas, right? We ought to be about the Lord's agenda, and we ought to be about His Word. And the things we're going to see tonight, listen, I, I hope you, you see this. You know, the things that we talk about on Thursdays and on Sundays with our pastor, uh, listen, we're just revealing what the Word says. Like, we're allowing the, the, the Spirit of God to reveal to us what His Word says. So, so these are His words tonight. They're not mine. They're not one Baptist. Uh, they're not something that we've made up. These are the things from his word. And listen, I have heard, I've heard stories before about people, uh, man, they were gung-ho, die hard for the King James Bible. Uh, so for first you have people who, who look at those who hold such a view of the Bible uh, or a King James Bible, and they're, they, they, you know, may scoff at that and, and whatnot. But 99% but of those that hold true to the King James Bible and then let that go for whatever reason, they trade in your, their King James Bible without doing an ounce, most often, of research, of understanding, of study, when it comes to this thing of manuscript evidence. And again, the, I just want to remind you, the reason we're addressing this tonight is not to beat out the agenda drum that we have on Baptists, I promise, right? Um, we're studying church history. And if we're going to know what has happened through the last nearly 2,000 years of church history, 
We've got to understand these things because we're going to see these places popping up, not just in the Word of God, but we're going to see things coming out of these places, good and bad. We're going to see God working in these places. We're going to see Satan working in these places. And so we've got to, again, to lay this foundation. And so, again, 99% of people who trade in their King James Bible do so without studying this issue of manuscripts. And there was a time when I, I remember um, when I was a kid, my mom, she, she would babysit children. And um, there was um, Joni, remember? She, she, she just got saved. Do you remember that? She just got saved. She was gotten plugged, plugged into a church. And, um, and I was quite young in my faith at best. And uh, I remember one day, I don't remember this, she came in, um, and she was talking about her King James Bible. And, and like how it's the, the only, you know, whatever, whatever. And, and, and I'm like, that's so, I don't even know if I knew the word legalistic at that time, but that's so whatever. And, and y'all would do the same, right? You're like, what is this? And, and, and that just tends to be the, the, the normal res, um, uh, perception of such a stance uh, because really it, it's all done. Uh, trading in the, the, this Bible is, is all done without studying the issue, without knowing. It's all about just preference. It's all about maybe emotion. It's about personal uh, or pastoral influence maybe. Well, my pastor uses this, so that's what I do. Even here, we ought not do that, right? We don't just do what the pastor does. Though the pastor leads by example. Well, well, well my pastor puts up these different versions. Well, well you know, we use, you know, forget those things, right? Let's just look at the facts, and let's look what the Word of God has to say. And, and Lord willing, that's what we're going to do tonight. And, and listen, this may seem, these things right here, this may seem like, like a moot point, really, uh, until you begin to see that, that God in his book, sets a pattern of the direction that he travels. Okay? God has certain places where he works, and Satan has certain places where he works. And, and I was reading an article from um, Logos, Bible Software. And, uh, and it's, just, it's probably the number one Bible software that you, know, you can use as a Bible teacher or pastor or whatever. And uh, this was a, quite an older one. Uh, but you can really find this. Esau is great. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, so I was reading this article in there, and, and um, just, just for funsies, and it was talking about why they were explaining why they used different texts of the Bible, different versions of the Bible, different Greek texts. And, and they themselves said they don't take a position. And I'm not mad at Logos, I'm just saying this is where they're coming from. They don't take a position on which version of the Bible we ought to use. Uh, they just offer, you know, whatever is available is, is available. And, and okay. Um, and so they could begin to explain um, where the two major, some of the things we're going to talk about tonight, some of the two major uh, lines of manuscripts come from. And how the, 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 the uh, majority text, which is where your King James Bible is translated from, that line, how it came out of Antioch. And, and then there's another line that was found much later, um, found much later, but dated much earlier. Uh, and for the simple fact that it was dated much earlier, uh, these, um, with my air quotes, scholars 
came out and started to find, though they were in a trash can and they were used to, to keep the, the monks in the monastery warm and, and they had their lines back to the uh, Roman Catholic Church and apparently someone thought enough of them to, to use them as kindling in a trash can. They said, oh, well, these are earlier. These are dated much earlier than, the, than what we know as the majority text. So, man, this must be closer to the originals. It must be more accurate. And so we think that older means better. But again, when, forget the historical facts for a moment if you want to. But just, again, look at what God says tonight. Because God shows us where he moves and where he doesn't move. And it just so happens to line up with how history has played out. With where, where these manuscripts came from and where they ended up. Um, and so the, the majority text uh, came out of uh, the West. And the... the um, Critical texts, as it's called, where all the all the, our modern versions that we have today come from, was from the East. And it's just interesting when you strictly look at what God says in His Word. Um, he just so happened to call Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees in Genesis chapter twelve, and He calls him to go from East to West. Uh, when the Jews enter Palestine in Numbers nineteen through twenty-five, they go from East to West. When Jacob got his heart right with God. And he comes back to God in Genesis 32 through 35. He comes from the east to the west. When the Jews go back to their homeland in Ezra and Nehemiah, after coming out of their captivity, they went from the east to the west. And when a priest entered the tabernacle, he would enter in from the east to the west. When Jesus entered Jerusalem the first time, he went from the east to the west. When he comes the second time, He's coming, he's going, to, going from that eastern gate, y'all, from the east to the west. And, and, you know, hey, you know, we can just do that whatever we want. Like, okay, you know, it is what it is. But again, you know, the Lord, he takes very, very great care to remind us and to let us know, again, like I said earlier, he kind of just throws in these, these locations, these places, these names, these numbers, or whatever. And so why is he doing that? And, and there's one line in the Bible's, one line of manuscripts that travels the same direction that the Lord is moving every time in his word. There is one line that goes from east to west. It's that Bible that comes out of Antioch. Okay? Now, again, I don't know how you feel about that, but do with it what you will. And if that's not doing much for you, then I don't blame you. You know, it's all good. Uh, but I want to take you on a little journey, as I said earlier, through the book of Acts. Uh, specifically where Antioch is concerned, because that's the first place I want to show you what God says about Antioch of Syria. So turn with me to Acts chapter 6. That's where we're going to be flipping through these. Uh, I don't think I put those up there, because uh, I want you to see these in your Bible. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Um, all these things we're going to describe tonight or look at, um, it says very plainly in the Word of God. And these are all moves of God, these amazing things that have happened. Number one, one of the first deacons, just happened to be from Antioch. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. And again, just watch this. Watch what happens. Uh, in those days, verse, chapter 6, verse 1, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. So what happens in verse 2 is the 12 calls the multitude of disciples and says, yo, guys, it's, it's not reason uh, that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Like, so we need people to, to serve in, in, in this act of service here. 
verse 3, it says, they, they took out among them seven men of honest report. There's your number seven, by the way. Full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we, is what they're saying, may appoint over this business. What business? The administration, exactly. The servant. Verse, verse 4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Verse 5, and the saying, it pleased the whole multitude. And so they go, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and um, Nicanor, Timon, I'm, I'm, I should say Pumba next, but uh, it's not there, it's Par Parmenas, and, and here it is, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So, maybe it's nothing, but maybe it's something. Like he goes through all these names, and he just happens to throw out Nicholas of Antioch. It's like, it's like you know, Colin Roll uh, in this church. And Cheyenne here, Amy here, David here, Ray here, Savannah, Peyton, Sarah, Frank of Rochester. It's like, what? Like, okay. Letter B, the first Gentile awakening was in Antioch. Flip with me to chapter 11 and verse 19. Acts 11, starting in verse 19. <clears throat> the first Gentile awakening, watch, 11:19. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen uh, traveled as far as Phoenix and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. In verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. In Antioch. And up until this point, the church, it was Jewish. <laughs> the church in Jerusalem, what they do is they send Barnabas over to Antioch. Look there again in chapter 11, verse 22. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem. So at this point, the church was still in Jerusalem, and they're hearing these things that are happening over there with the Gentiles in Antioch. And what do they do? They send forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, verse 23, who when he came, and what did he see there in Antioch? He saw the grace of God, and he was glad. He exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. And again, in Antioch, much people was added unto the Lord. And so they sent the, 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 the Jewish disciples and the Christians, they send Barnabas to Antioch to find out what's going on. Uh, then when he's there, he, look what happens in verse 25, Barnabas leaves Antioch and he go gets Paul, Saul at the time. Uh, Acts 11, verse 25 and 26. Or the first part of 26. Then departed Barnabas, after he saw this, Barnabas leaves to Tarsus, to Saul of Tarsus. And when he had found him, he brought him unto, not Jerusalem, there's a transition going on, right? He brings him to Antioch. Now, why would he bring him to Antioch? Of course, there, there's a big uh, a revival or whatever, move of the Lord going on. But do you remember in Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16? The, 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 uh, the Lord's uh, call on Paul's life. He said, the Lord said to him, go thy way, for he is a, he's talking to Barnabas, by the way. 
Barnabas is used, the same Barnabas is used to, to, to take Paul in and to minister to him and with him after his conversion. So no doubt Barnabas knows what God told Paul. Like, like Paul has shared this testimony with him. That's why he's bringing him to Antioch. He, he was called in Acts 9, 15, and 16 to bear his name, the Lord's name, to the Gentiles. And now Barnabas would have obviously known that because he was one of those first ones to take him in after his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. He, Barnabas was the one who encouraged Paul. He was the one who spent time with him. He was the one who talked to him. He knew what God said to Paul. And he remembered that God called an apostle to the Gentiles. And so he wanted to show him what was going on. Listen, dude, Paul, this is, this is it. This is what you said the Lord said to you. And so you see this great awakening, not in Jerusalem, but in Antioch. A letter C, the disciples, of course, were first called Christians in Antioch. Look in, again in the latter part of verse 26. If you're in Acts chapter 11, look at verse 26. Um, he brought them to Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year when they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And do you realize that every time we refer to ourselves as Christians, we are, are identifying ourselves with the forefathers of Antioch because they were first called Christians in Antioch. And everyone wants to look at the, 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 the quote, early church in Jerusalem as the model. Like We need to get back to that early church in Jerusalem. And man, no doubt, there were some great things going on there. And there are some uh, personal or devotional, inspirational uh, application that we can draw from there. But that's not our model. That was a Jewish church. In Jerusalem, you know what they were doing? They were sitting around in a community. They were bringing communal goods and just waiting for the second coming of Christ because they expected it to happen at any moment. Because, again, the old church age and, and, you know, God being done with Israel in Acts chapter 7, but coming back... That they, they didn't get that. So they were expecting, that's why uh, Peter is preaching the messages he's preaching all through the first several chapters of Acts, their second coming messages. They're, they're not, they're just sitting around waiting for that to happen in community. We ought not to do that. We don't just sit on our blessed assurance waiting for the Lord to come back. We are called to do something before he comes back and until he comes back. And so what we see is God is taking his hand off of Jerusalem in this transition time, and he's putting his hand on Antioch. He's taking his hand off of Jerusalem and putting it on Antioch. If you're in Acts chapter 11, look at verse 27. Acts eleven twenty-seven, And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus. April, if we ever have another kid... Agabus, I submit for approval. Okay, well, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Verse 29, then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. Which also they did, and sent it by the elders, or excuse me, to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So that, the point is, God is blessing the church in Antioch so much 
that, that those people in that church are, are sending money and resources to the church in Jerusalem. God is all about what's going on in Antioch now because he is temporarily putting a hold on the nation of Israel and on the Jews. There's a transition that has taken place. Letter D, the first Bible teachers were in the church at Antioch. Look at chapter 13 and verse 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers. Letter E, the first missionaries were out from uh, were sent out, excuse me, from the church at Antioch. If you're still in Acts 13, look at verses 2 and 3. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas, and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And so they fasted and prayed, verse 3, and laid their hands on them, and they sent them away. Where did that take place? The church in Antioch. And so they go on their first missionary journey, and when the mission is complete, Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, excuse me, when the mission is complete, they returned not to Jerusalem. They went to Antioch. Look at chapter 14, verses 25 through 28. And again, I intentionally didn't put these up there, so if you're jotting them down, you're tracking with me, awesome sauce. Verse 25, chapter 14, when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down into Atalia and thence sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. And look down at verse 28, there they abode long time with the disciples. Listen, no one thought about sending a report back to Jerusalem. No one went back to Jerusalem. So think about all that we've seen in Antioch and, and, and note that everything in the book of Acts related to Antioch of Syria is always in a positive context as far as God is concerned. And if you remember from our study of Genesis 1 and 2 a few weeks ago, when God sets a pattern in his word, he does not break it. He's showing us something. So this is the place from where you can trace that line of manuscripts where we get our King James Bible. It came out of that Texas Receptus, that majority text. It came out of Antioch. But there's another place that God emphasizes in the Bible. And you better keep your eye on that place, too. Because it's the source of every other translation of the Bible. And, and I, I don't have any axes up here. I didn't bring any to grind. So I'm not saying this with contempt in my heart. But these are just historical facts and, and biblical facts. That other place is Alexandria of Egypt. And... and just as everything in the Bible as it pertains to Antioch of Syria, God sees as positive, you will notice that everything in the book of Acts related to Alexandria is always a negative context. Now, we're not talking Egypt right now. We're strictly talking just Alexandria first. So what does God let us know when it, when, when it comes to, excuse me, we're going to talk about Egypt first. I'm getting ahead of myself. And then we'll, we'll look at um, Alexandria. But uh, what does God teach us about Egypt in the Bible? Like, regardless of, of what I think about it or you think about it or whatever, God calls it, and he says, letter A, it is a picture of the world. It's a picture of the world. A place of bondage where God's people are held in contempt, are slaves, are in captivity. Is that not what we were? Before Christ, we were slaves to self, slaves to sin, bondage, and captivity. 
Letter B, God calls his people constantly, y'all. He calls his people out of Egypt. Time and time again. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 10. Not sure if I put that up there or not, but if I didn't, write it down. He says, Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And he doesn't just say that one time. God repeats himself time and time again. In fact, in Exodus alone, there are 38 references. I counted them. There are 38 references to God bringing his people out of Egypt. God said that 38 times in one book. In Leviticus, eight times God says, I am the Lord that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And I think I included those there in your notes, the, the, the other times. Why is God so uh, emphatic about uh, his, his people coming out of Egypt? If he cares about that, then we ought to care about that. And, and not just in, in, in our lives, but that's a huge thing. As we'll see in a moment, God does not think highly of Egypt at all. If this hasn't convinced you yet, just wait and watch. And, and, and if, if these things are the case, and they are, because look them up. Why, why would we go to Egypt to get our Bibles? To get the word of the Lord? Coming out of Egypt is a picture of salvation. Because Colossians chapter 113 describes it as being delivered from the power of darkness and being translated from the kingdom, or excuse me, to the kingdom of his dear son. And uh, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 3 uh, calls us, uh, says, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage. Just like those children of Israel in Egypt, in bondage. Under what? The elements of the world. And so you have that. And then you have Jacob in the Old Testament. Remember Jacob there in Genesis 47, uh, specifically verse 29. I think I put it up there. Yeah. So the time's coming where you know, he's called Israel. Uh, God changes his name and it's drawing near that he, he's about to die. And he calls Joseph over and he says, if now I have found grace in thy sight, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt. Whatever you do, wherever you bury me, do not put my bones in the dirt in Egypt. And then you have Joseph, his son, there in uh, chapter 50 of Genesis, verses 24 through 25, and Joseph said unto his brethren, so Joseph is now getting the point where he's about to die. He says, I died. And God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. He's in Egypt. Do not let me be buried here. Out of this land. Why Egypt? What's so bad about Egypt? And it's just interesting, let us see, that when the Bible talks about something or someone going into Egypt, watch it, every word, 
it's always a downward move. They always go down into Egypt. You ever notice that? Genesis 12.10, Abram went down into Egypt. Genesis 26.2, the Lord appeared and says, go not down into Egypt. Why are they going up into Egypt? Well, that's just the direction they were. 100%, yeah. But, but you take what God is showing us here, and it's just interesting, interesting every time. Genesis 39.1, Joseph was brought down to Egypt. It's food for thought. Letter D, uh, you know God calls Egypt in Exodus 20, verse 2, the house of bondage. He calls it the house of bondage. Moses, in Deuteronomy 4.20, calls it the iron furnace. In Deuteronomy 17 and verse 16, God says of his people and to his people, don't you dare do business with Egypt. Don't get horses from them. Don't get money. Don't do business with Egypt. Why? Why, Lord? Isaiah 31 and verse 1 warns, woe to them that go down to Egypt for help. Hmm. And listen, it is from Egypt that that line of manuscripts derives where we do get every modern version of our Bible. And so listen, the issue is not KJV versus modern versions. The issue is what God happens to say about these places and where these manuscripts came from. It's those manuscripts that's the issue. And God is very clear about this. And Egypt, friend, is where every Bible college and every seminary will go to get their Bible. And I'm not, I'm not upset at them, necessarily. I was part of one. I got a degree from one of them. But why would we go to a place that God told his people, don't go there? So, as I said earlier, what about Alexandria? Because I told you it's Alexandria of Egypt. Okay, so, so what does God let us know in the book of Acts? Again, we'll look at the Bible here about Alexandria. So, so before we get there, I think I put this in your notes, uh, something to file back in your thinking about Alexandria uh, that we'll come to later on in our study of church history. But just so you know, uh, did I put this up here, guys, or not? I can't remember if I did, but I know I put it in your notes, so you have it there. Uh, there was a famous school in Alexandria uh, whose headmaster uh, was a guy by the name of Philo. And this dude, Philo, he was influenced uh, by the Greek philosophers Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, no doubt you, you probably read some of them or learned about them in school. And what he began to do, this headmaster of this school in Alexandria, Egypt, is he began to blend the teachings of the Greek philosophers and the writings of the Old Testament. He saw the, the writings of philosophy as just as inspired and just as true as the Old Testament scriptures. And we are going to keep our eye on that school because by the time 200 AD rolls around, there's a new headmaster in town. There's a new headmaster at that school, and he goes by the name Origen. And Origen was heavily influenced by Philo. 
And Philo was heavily influenced by those Greek philosophers. And in that school, you will see some of the most bizarre things that Origen did when he got hold of that Greek manuscript. And that's not personal bias, it's just historical record. And so let's just go to the Bible and let it teach us about Alexandria, just to ensure uh, that I'm not putting a personal slant uh, on this whole thing. So letter A, uh, Alexandrians were part of the group who disputed with Stephen. Okay, so I'm going to turn your attention back to your Bible, to Acts chapter 6 again. Look at Acts chapter 6. I'm not going to be up there, so don't be lazy. Acts 6, verse 9. So we were in Acts 6, 1 through 5 when we, when we saw those, those disciples, or excuse me, those, um, those deacons that were coming out uh, there with Antioch. And, and verse 9 there, then there was a certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the uh, Libertines and Cyrenius, or Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. So, you just, again, you just, God happens to list some of these locales or these locations, and it happens to be an Alexandrian who is disputing with a man that God has put his seal on as being filled with the Holy Ghost, as one that was cho chosen um, in Acts chapter 6. Interesting. The man that, that when he was stoned, saw the Lord Jesus standing there at the right hand of the Father simply because he was preaching the word of God. And there in Acts chapter 6, in those first you know, 10, 13 verses or so, I want you to know how the first mention of Antioch and the first mention of Alexandria are in that same passage. Antioch is there in, in around verse 5. And then here in verse, um, what is that, 6, or excuse me, 9, you have this mention of the Alexandrians. And again, notice what they're doing here in verse 11. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. In verse 12, they're stirring up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witness. This man ceases, ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. It's interesting. What is God doing here? He's setting up a contract between Antioch and Alexandria. Letter B, Alexandria is connected with bad Bible teaching. Look at chapter 18. Okay, I'm assuming that y'all have digital Bibles because I don't hear pages, but that's cool. Acts chapter 18, verse 24. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born of Alexandria, just for kicks and giggles, an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, man, he could preach. He came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord. He was fervent in spirit. He spake. He taught diligently the things of the Lord. But look what he taught. In Acts chapter 18, after the transition has taken place, after the establishment of the New Testament Gentile church, what's he teaching, y'all? The baptism of John. That baptism of repentance for remission of sins. A very different, that's not the gospel of Christ. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. 
And then it says, they took him unto them and expounded to him the way of God more perfectly. He, he had to be brought up and said, no, dude, come here. You're, you're teaching them. That's bad doctrine. I, I know you mean well. You love the Lord. You're teaching bad doctrine. And God just lets us know that he was of Alexandria. Look in chapter 19, uh, verse 1. You see the same thing, verses 1 through 5. Um, it came to pass while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said to them in verse 2, Have you received the Holy Ghost since he believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him what should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They're in baptism. So, so, so the, Paul had to come in and, and correct that. Letter C, it just so happened that it is a ship from Alexandria that takes Paul to Rome and his ultimate death. Acts 27, 6, there was a centurion. Uh, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy and Paul says he put us on it. That's Acts 27, 6. Acts 20, 11. Again, after three months, we departed in a ship of Alexandria. Why does it matter that it's a ship of Alexandria, Egypt, that's taking Paul to, his, to Rome, which we'll get to in a moment, and to his ultimate death? Why not a ship of Ireland? Why not a ship of Antioch? And I want you to keep your eye, friend, on that connection between Alexandria and Rome. And, and that's where we're going next in just a moment. Uh, but, but just to pause real quick. Everything that we have seen so far about Egypt, specifically Alexandria, Egypt, how could we think for one moment that God would be okay with us getting our Bibles from anything that is associated with Alexandria or Egypt. Like, why would that, and this is not me, like, like, like we have to answer that. Like, why, Robert, why would you be okay with that? Chris, why would you be okay with that? Kathy, why would you, April, John, TJ, Pam, like, why would we be okay with that? We ought not to be, not because we're one Baptist church, but because God's not. He was very clear very clear. Does that sound consistent with Scripture? To, to, to go to the manuscripts that came out of Alexandria, Egypt? When God says, don't you even bury your dead bones in there. Is that consistent with, with what God teaches us about himself and, and uh, what he reveals in his word? And I would humbly ask, shouldn't that be obvious? Like, if we're going to take this book at face value and, and read it and believe it in faith that every word is true and right and pure and holy just as he is, shouldn't that make us just at least stop and think? At least ponder. And, and for me, y'all, I mean, pe people, you know, I, can, can ask me all day long. And I've had people ask me, well, you know, why are you so adamant about the King James Bible? This stuff here, not the teeth and notes, but like these scriptures, 
Like, what, it's what God says. It seals the deal for me. It, it does. Like, I, I don't need to preach anything else about this. Because it should seal the deal for us. Because this is all what God has said. And I have not rested or, or taken any scriptures here out of context. So why would we be okay with that? We don't have to know all about origin, all about Philo. We don't have to know that. That's history, and that's good to know. Just what God says. Though the other things, they're, just, they're really just icing on the cake. We don't have to know about origin and how he made in the neighborhood of 50,000 changes in the Greek text. Did you hear me? In that line of manuscripts from which we can peruse the marketplace of Bible, modern Bible versions, approximately 50,000 changes. Why, Origen, when Psalm 12, 6, and 7 says that the words of the Lord are pure words? Why, Origen, when Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, not give or take 50,000, why? Who would be behind that? But there's one other key place, um, as I mentioned, that I want us to keep our eye on, not just tonight, but as we go into church history. Watch Antioch of Syria. You're going to need to watch Alexandria of Egypt as we start talking about these things, and then you're going to need to watch Rome. And after you let this book teach you about Rome... You will not go to Rome to find out what biblical Christianity is. You will not go to Rome to find out what God said. You will not go to Rome to find out who Jesus is. And I don't mean physically going to the place of Rome. If you just let the Bible be the Bible, I think, I think we're, we have included these in your notes, of course. It was Rome that tried to kill Jesus at his birth. Go check that out. I'm, I'm not going to go to each of these, don't worry. I just put them in there for you. It was. It was Rome. It was Rome that, that killed John the Baptist there in Matthew 14. Rome had Christ beaten in Matthew 27, 24. Rome had the crown of thorns placed on his head. Rome put the nails in his hands and his feet. Rome had him crucified. Matthew 27, 35. Rome, excuse me, Roman soldiers cast lots for his garments. A Roman soldier put the spear in his side. It was the Roman soldiers that sealed his tomb. It was Rome that had James' head cut off. It was Rome that had Paul arrested and finally killed. And it just so happens that one of the other places where that second line of manuscripts comes from with, us, with, with our modern Bible versions today, they are tied to Rome. They are tied to the Vatican. They're tied to the Roman Catholic Church. And, 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 and you know, when we say that, man, Rome had Jesus crucified, we're guilty. You're guilty. I'm guilty. Right? Innocent blood is on our hands from that perspective. It wasn't just the Jews. It wasn't just the Romans. You know, 
Oops, I think we get that. But you go and see these Roman centurions. Rome, Rome, Rome. What is God teaching us? God uses the book of Acts to give us not just the interpretation of these key places, but the interpretation of key groups and events in church history. So we're going to go through this here, and we'll close off with this in just a few moments. You will see several words pop up through the book of Acts, and, and we'll start to see these same words pop up, these same um, events, these same uh, groups of people pop up through church history as well. And so as we did with, with Egypt, and as we did with Antioch, uh, and we're gonna, as we did with Rome, let's just go to the Bible and see what it says about these particular groups that we see often popping up in the book of Acts. Because again, you will see them as we start studying church history. And the reason for this time tonight is that when you see them in church history, you might remember some of these things. Oh yeah, God said something about councils. God says something about Antioch. Anyways, in Matthew 10, verse 17, we read this. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they, who? The councils, will scourge you in their synagogue. Mark 13, 9. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues, you shall be beaten. Matthew 12, 14, the Pharisees went out and they just happened to hold a council against Jesus. And what did they counsel in their council? How they might destroy him in a council. Matthew 26, 59, now the chief priests and the elders and all the Council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. Robert, that's just kind of grasping at straws. Listen, friend. On almost every occasion in the New Testament, the word council, C O U N C I L, indicates a group of Bible rejecting religious leaders. Whose job is to take, excuse me, to stop the work of the Holy Spirit. They're beating. They're blaspheming. They're accusing. They're scourging. They're bearing false witness. And we're going to read and learn about some councils, friends, as we begin our study of church history. They just happen to be doing the same things that we see them doing in the Word of God all those years later. The other... Um, name or, or phrase that you'll often see is priest or priests throughout the book of Acts. You'll see that a lot. Um, and, and just quickly, priest or priests, you will see a reference to approximately 27 times in the book of Acts. Okay, that's cool. But of those men, 26 of them are a negative connotation with the exception of Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, when a group of them got saved. And so when you see priests in the Bible, if we're going to use the Bible as our authority, and I submit to you, we ought to, 
What do you find priests doing to Bible believers in the book of Acts? And so knowing nothing about, you know, having no preconceived notions or ideas, let's just again go to the Word of God. What do you find them doing? And I'm not going to go to every single verse because uh, I include them there for you. Letter A, you see them beating. Physically beating Bible believers. Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5. Right? When, when, when they call, the priest calls them in and they say, didn't we tell you not to preach and teach in this name? We warned you first. Now we're going to lay a hand on you. And they walked away rejoicing that they were able to suffer persecution for the name of Jesus. They're beating them. Letter B, they're throwing them in prison. Acts 4 and Acts 5 as well. Letter C, the, the, these priests are, man, they're filled with indignation against Bible believers. Letter D, as I said earlier, they're commanding them not to preach. Why, why, would, why would priests, a supposed office of the ministry, command Bible believers not to preach? Who do you think is behind that? Where are we? Commanding not to preach. Martyring a Bible believer. Acts chapter 7. Go, go read that account of Stephen. See if you don't see any uh, priests there. Letter F. Granting permission to capture them. Acts chapter 9. Of course, that was given to, from a priest to Saul. So he can go and get those who were of the way. Letter G. Granting permission to put them to death. Letter H. Hitting a Bible believer in the mouth, Acts 23.2, and I, letter I, conspiring to put a Bible believer to death, Acts 23.14-15. I don't hate priests. Like, I'm not, I'm not like, again, I'm not pushing an agenda other than what I believe the Lord is pushing. But you know, when you go through church history, as we're going to do in a few weeks, we're going to start, and that's going to carry us um, for, for a bit of time. You go through church history, you see priests, they're not doing anything different. I'm telling you, it's history. They're not doing anything different than what we see them doing here. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. What's that other one? Martyrs and Mirrors? Is that the other one? Yeah. Why is that? It's setting a pattern. God is setting the pattern. He's saying, watch out. And, and I want you to notice the, I'm using air quotes a lot tonight, the strange, though it's not really strange, but it may seem strange, the strange disappearance of the word priest in the letters to the New Testament church. But you know that there is a church who claims that they have some priests. And those priests are the top dogs. And, and they make sure that they're known by that. But you know what? It's nowhere in the New Testament until you get to Hebrews, which is a book written to Jews. But 
where we go as the church, for, for our model, for New Testament doctrine, for what we believe, we don't have priests. So what do we do with that? If we're going to let God and his word be the standard and the authority, what are we going to do with that? And listen, once you begin to see this pattern that the Bible sets up, you begin to look through church history, and you can read it just as plain as day. And that's what I'm hoping this time allows us to do, sets us up with, with some filters, some biblical filters. When we start to see these things take place in history, as we walk through time, the last 2,000 years, we're going to see a lot of this come up. And if you go to the Bible... And you let the Bible be your authority, be your filter. And you see these events and these groups of people as God does, and as he tells us to, then you will, listen, you will be able to see what most people don't. You will be able to understand what most people don't. And, and I'm not saying that from a prideful standpoint. It's because... Most of Christianity, Christianity today it is experience-driven and it's emotional-driven, or emotionally-driven. And a lot of it is built on the foundation of self. I mean, that's what Laodicea is all about. But if we let the Word of God really be the Word of God, it will give us its own interpretation. And that's all I'm trying to submit to you tonight. If you agree at all with the statement that the Bible is and ought to be our authority, then when we study church history and we look at where we came from, where different doctrines and denominations, we're going to look at all that stuff, where all that has come from, where this emphasis on Mary has come from, where Easter has come from, uh, where, where just, I mean, it just goes on and on. We're going to look at it from this, this book and let, as God said in his word, do not interpretations belong to God alone. So Father, I thank you for your word and, and I pray, Lord, that as we uh, just think about these things and, and kind of uh, hopefully set ourselves up, Lord, for um, studying the history of, of the church, Lord, your church, and then those that have been used by the enemy to, to uh, counterfeit your church, Lord. I pray that we remember these things. Not that we would remember um, important points or anything, but strictly your words. Because I know I need my mind refreshed and rewired all the time to look at things from your perspective because I'm so good and so accustomed to looking at things through my perspective. So Lord, give us a spirit of humility as we talk about these things, as we learn these things. Uh, give us a spirit of humility to be open to the things that you are teaching us, not any man. Lord, you be true and every man a liar. And God, give us a desire for truth and for it to, to just completely change us from the inside out. And as we study these things, Lord, give us a burden and a love for your word, uh, for your people, and uh, Lord, for, for, for the lost. We 
In Jesus' name, amen. Hello. Can you hear me? You know, um, I just want to kind of jump on, on the back of uh, Robert here for a second because <clears throat> what I want you guys to understand is that this issue, if we want to call it that, uh, really is, uh, you know, I know we live in a country where opinions matter, <laughs> right? Everybody, everybody's got, got, got an opinion and everybody's opinion matters. We have to understand something. If God is God, that sounds like an oxymoron, but in America, I'm not sure it is. But if God is God, then his word stands tall. He has elevated his word above his very name. So he has put a prime, uh, 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 whatever you want to say, on it. Jesus is the word. Um, gosh, couple couple Easter's ago, I want to say, maybe, uh, while, while we were still at the, 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 the Zion Baptist Church, I preached a message. And you remember I showed uh, two pictures. I put up a picture of Michael Jackson, and I put up a picture of um, Elvis Presley. And I asked everybody, I said, who, who, who is this? Oh, Michael Jackson. Who's that? Oh, it's Elvis Presley. And then what did I say? No, it's not. Those are impersonators. They look like Michael Jackson. Now, if you went up and actually talked to that person and started asking them intimate details about Michael Jackson's life, do you think they would know it? Of course not. They look like Michael Jackson. But they don't know Michael Jackson's intimate details. They don't know his life. They don't know things. You go, what does that got to do with anything? It has to do with everything. If the Bible is the mind of Christ, the question is, do we have the real thing or do we have an impersonation? And if we have an impersonation, we better be careful. Because we might get wrong details. Matter of fact, I'll almost argue we absolutely will get wrong details. This thing of Bible translations is very important. We live in a day and age where we have been whitewalled, man, seriously. And it is amazing to me, it is surprising to me, yet... I have no doubt to why it happened. People are just oblivious to it, man. They just don't know. And that doesn't mean they're bad people, like Robert said. That doesn't mean they're not truly seeking after the Lord or things like that. I, I didn't say that, and you didn't say that. And I, I listen, there are certainly some people that will argue this point and make it into a, a, a situation where they'll turn it into something that is not. Listen, that's, I'm not about that. That's not what I want to do. But, but, but as Robert just, just kind of explained to us, listen, at the end of the day, facts are a stubborn thing. And, and that's just the truth of the matter. And really, I've just come to a place in my life where I'm going, you know what? I, I got to stop going on what I think and just start going on the facts. 
And the reality is, the reality is, if you read, this is the facts, if you read any Bible translation outside of the King James Bible, I will repeat that because it is absolutely 100% fact. If you read any Bible translation that's not a King James Bible, including the New King James Bible, by the way, if you read any of them that are not King James Bible, okay, you are reading a Roman Catholic doctrine. That's the facts. You can argue it all you want. I can prove it to you 100%, no doubt about it. Why? Because they're translated from Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Vaticanus, where did that come out of, Robert? Sinaiticus, St. Catherine's Cathedral, I think is where you're going to take us, yeah? 1828, von Tischendorf. Where did they find that? In a trash can? Yeah. Facts. See, but how many, how many people in America know that? When you walk into life, so life, 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 time store, whatever it's called. What is it called? Lifeway. Lifeway. You can see the last time I walked into a Lifeway store. Right? When you walk into a Lifeway store and you go, hey, what Bible should I get? And you go to, well, what, what, what fits your need? See, see, the answer is that, well, you know, I'm looking for a good teen Bible. Right? No. No. The answer is, do you want to read Roman Catholic doctrine or do you want to read church doctrine? Which one do you want? See, that's really, you know, I've often argued and I've often said, I don't know why we're arguing about translations, versions, who cares? That's not the argument. If we spend time talking about that, we're really not arguing what we should be arguing about. No, what we should be arguing about is where, what manuscript did it come from? There's the argument. <laughs> That's the real argument. What manuscript did it come from? Unbelievably, crazy as it is, do you know that there's only one English translation that solely comes from the Texas Receptus on the market today? Facts are facts. Can't argue them. It's true. Do you know which translation that is? The King James Bible. Do, do you know that there's only one translation on the market today, in English, only one that does not have a copyright on it? Did you know that? He said, what's a copyright? A copyright means that somebody else owns the right of those words and can make money off of it. You see? There's only one translation in the Bible today that doesn't have a copyright on it. Now, could you find a King James Bible that has a copyright on it? Yes, you can. You want to know what kind of Bible that will be? Huh? That'll be a study Bible. And what's copyrighted is the study Bible part of it. You can't put a copyright on a King James Bible. It's illegal. <laughs> you want to know why? Because God's Word's not void. It's not bound. You can't bound God's word. We can sit here literally, and I'm sure Robert could have sat here literally for the next five weeks and probably still haven't exhausted everything we could be talking about this issue. But I want you to know, this issue is not just some small issue. This is a huge issue, because as, as Robert told us, you're talking about anywhere from 40 
to 65,000 words missing. When you go from Vaticanus Sinaiticus manuscripts to Texas Receptus manuscripts. If you don't think that's important, let me just give you a little idea of what that means. It's like taking out the book of Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and Revelation out of the Bible. That'll be roughly about 60 to 65,000 words. Take those books right out of the Bible, okay, and then you got what comes out of Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. If you're okay with that, then what I would say to you, humbly, well, then you really don't take the Bible as your authority. Because when God says every word, you don't really mean every word. Because if you don't think every word's important, then why, or if you think every word's important, then why are you okay with 65,000 words being taken out? Now, the, the counter argument could be, well, maybe there weren't 65,000 words taken out. Maybe there were 65,000 words put in, which also would be a very wrong thing to do. Not going to argue that point at all, okay? Uh, but uh, I would just simply say, when 95% of the manuscripts we have on the market today agree with the 65,000 being in there, do you really want to go with the 5% that don't? Is that, really where, is that really where your argument's going to stand? Because you're probably going to lose there. Okay, we have 63,000 extant manuscripts. Extant means we have them in our possession today. And when you compare them one to another, what's, what's crazy is Vaticanus, the, the majority text, as Robert was talking about, they agree with one another 95% of the time. Did you know the minority text, the ones that don't agree with one another, the 5% of the time, the Vaticanus and Sinaiticus? You know what's crazy about that is? When you compare them to one another, they don't even agree. So if you're a scholar, guess what you're doing? Which one do I like best? Well, it just depends on what agenda you want to fix. What agenda do you want to go with? Well, I like that one best. Okay, we'll go with that one. Well, I like that one best. Okay, we'll go with that one. Well, that one sounds good. Okay. Well, you know what? I really don't know that, you know, speaking against homosexuals is a really bad, good thing to do today. Well, that one right there seems to be pretty light against homosexuals, so let's go with that one. Well, time out a second. <laughs> Who gave that person the right to make that choice? This issue is far deeper than people think. Let me just end on this. I've been asked quite a few times why we are called a Baptist church. Why, 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 why are we called one Baptist church? Why don't we just be a non-denominational church? Okay, first of all, number one, okay, there is no such thing as non-denominational churches. But let's just say that right now, okay? You can sit there and tell me all you want. Oh, well, I go to a non-denominational church. No, you don't. Give me your church website. Give me five minutes, and I'll tell you what denomination your church is teaching. Okay? Now, that's not to say denominations are biblical, because they're not. You won't find a Baptist church or a Pentecostal church or a Catholic church or any of those churches in the Bible. So I'm not advocating for denominations. Matter of fact, some of you have been with me from the beginning. You'll know I, I don't like denominations at all. Uh, there's, they're very non-biblical. Okay, then, Frank, if that's the truth, why'd you put Baptist Church on? Because what I learned while I've been here in Jacksonville is this. This is a very divided town on a lot of issues. 
This town has a lot of syncretism. You know what syncretism is? Uh, it's like this, okay? Uh, I, I, I got taught it this way. Let's say we had a bowl of salad, and, and you get all your green salad, and, and you, know, you throw it all in the bowl. Okay, this is what syncretism is. And now you take some tomatoes, and you throw it in there. You get some onions, and you throw it in there. And you get some olives, and you throw it in there. And you get some, what? keep going, and you just start to mix it all up, and whatever comes out on the other side is what you got. You all follow? Okay. The reason why we have the Baptist name on this church really, really, really does go back to this whole Bible translation thing. What we're emphatically stating without, without any apology, we do not today, nor have we ever condoned Roman Catholic doctrine. That's why we're called the Baptist Church. If you were to talk to Pastor Billy Wood, he'd tell you the same thing. That's why. We are, we are, we, we just want to, do, we don't want to confuse anybody. We don't want anybody to be, be besides, you know, we, we don't want to pretend like we're something that we're not. That's what, that's what, that's what a non-denominational church basically is doing. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying, hey, man, let's call it like it is. Facts are a stubborn thing. Let's call it like it is. Okay, so the reason why we're called the Baptist Church, we do not agree with the Roman Catholic Church, its Roman doctrine, and nor do we agree with the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. We never have agreed with it, we never have been a part of it, and we never will. End of story. And as much as the church is calling for a... A what? Bringing everything together today under the banner of a one religion, we will never do that. We will always stand on the word of God as the authority. Doesn't matter what anybody tells us. Now, that brings us to a very, very simple understanding and we're done. You wanna know why this church is the way it is? Do you wanna know why people will have a problem with this church? You want to know why people will call this church this and call this church that and, and whatever it is? It's fine. It's okay. I have no problem with that. It just tells me we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Okay? So that's actually a good thing when people do that. Let me just tell you. The reason why they're doing that is because we do hold to every word of God as the authority. And so because we do that, we will get labeled what we get labeled. And the reason, you say, well, why, how do you know that we're doing, why do we do that? Well, this is how I know we're doing it, and this is why we're doing it. Number one, because it's only in the King James Bible that you'll go to 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, you know, where it says, study to show thyself worthy and approved unto God. It's only in the King James Bible that will say it had the word study there. Go check it. Go see. Go see what all the other translations say. See, we study. We actually think, we're just dumb enough to believe that we need to live by every word of God. 
when people say to me and people say about this church, well, that's just your interpretation, I laugh. Honestly, I laugh. Let's, okay. <laughs> You're always saying that out of ignorance. Because if you knew anything about this church or you really knew what we were all about, you know we don't privately interpret anything. We just go by what it says. And if you've been here and you know, you go, yeah, absolutely, 100%. But if you don't know, then that's easy. That's the easy attack, you see. Note that. That's an easy attack people will make on you. And they'll be like, oh, you guys, that's just your interpretation of the scripture. Well, listen, when it says that 144,000 Jews are going to be the 144,000 witnesses, guess what? Sorry, Jehovah Witnesses. Sorry, Mormons. Sorry, Roman Catholics. Sorry, whoever else wants to make any other claim. It's going to be the 144,000 Jews out of the 12 tribes of Israel during the tribulation period where that's all going to happen. Why? Because that's what it says. It's not my interpretation. That's what it says. <laughs> yeah? Yeah? Okay. Study to show thyself worthy. Study. And that's what we do. When I look around this church and I see we have 15 guys who can get up at this pulpit and preach. When I see the folks that have come out of this church and their knowledge base of the Bible. And, and I ask myself, and I go, man, Robert, dude, what a man, huh? Come on, man, bring it. Aren't we good at this? We are the best pastors in Jeff. No, it has nothing to do with either one of us. Yeah. We're both just as dumb as her, or he might be a little dumber, I don't know. I haven't quite figured it out, or maybe I am, I don't know, it's probably me. No, this has nothing to do with us. You want to know what we did? We just submitted to what the word said. And because we submitted, we did what we were supposed to do, and then you submitted. That's why people walk out this door knowing and having a knowledge base that they now can work with properly. Because we just believe God and his word. That's all. His word is very, very important. When we get to the place where we realize the importance of it, see, at this church, and most of you have been here long enough, this isn't an issue for you anymore. You've already, you've already solved it. You already know why. But I'm telling you, there's a world out there, and when I mean a world out there, I mean just go through the doors, and you're at the world out there, who have no clue, no understanding of this, and they will just continue the path they're on, not knowing that what they're really reading out of, and I ain't afraid to say it, I'm just not. They're really reading out of a satanically influenced Bible. And people will go, oh, come on, you can't say that. That ain't right. Well, it is right. It is right. And most of you have been here long enough, you know this example. But if it, And we could do hundreds of them. Yeah, yeah Robert? We can do hundreds of them. But the best example that I could give you is just go to Isaiah 14. Yeah. Yeah. And then go to Revelation 22. Mm -hmm. And ask yourself why the name Lucifer is only found in the King James Bible. Matter of fact, you wouldn't even know the name Lucifer if it wasn't for your King James Bible. Did you know that? Because if you look at any other translation, Vaticanus and Eaticus, they're going to tell you he's called what? The son of the morning. Morning star. Yeah. He's the morning star. Well, that's interesting because when you go to Revelation 22, guess what Jesus calls himself? The morning star. So either God is completely confused 
about who Satan and Lucifer is, or Lucifer and Jesus is, or Lucifer's got an agenda he's trying to push, and he's got all of us all, all of us done messed up. I don't think God's got it messed up. I think God knows exactly who Lucifer is, and I think God knows exactly who Jesus is. I think God knows exactly who the morning star is and who the uh, uh, star of, what is it called? Son of the morning. Son of the morning. Thank you. I think he knows exactly who it is. And I think it's interesting that only the King James Bible makes the proper distinction. You say, well, that's not true. Go check it out for yourself. Facts are a stubborn thing. Amen?